It's Monday, September 12th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, is the most American of all fruits finally going to get its time to shine? And no, NASA did not officially ask the public to name the probe to Uranus, but they could one day, and if and when they do, the internet will be ready. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. The hottest new produce has possibly been lurking under you and your ancestors' noses for thousands of years, yet you may never have heard of it. Thankfully, it's a bit easier to pronounce than on its way out, it food, acai. I am talking about the pawpaw a green, oblong fruit that looks kind of like a small potato. Inside, its custard-like flesh tastes like a cross between a mango and a banana, with hints of vanilla, coconut, or citrus depending on the variety. It's in season from about mid-August to early October, and according to Michael Judd, pawpaw educator and author of the book For the Love of Pawpaws, a mini-manual for growing and caring for pawpaws from seed to table, the pawpaw is a superfood. It's got antioxidants, magnesium, copper, zinc, iron, potassium, phosphorus, and vitamin C. The pawpaw is the largest edible fruit native to North America. Rumor has it George Washington liked eating them for dessert, and can be found in 26 states in the U.S., yet many people are completely unaware of its existence. As the Washington Post summed it up earlier this month, quote, There are two types of people in the region right now, those who know it's pawpaw season and those who've never heard of the fruit, end quote. Despite thriving in temperate eastern U.S. states, usually along rivers and in forests, the pawpaw tree is a tropical one, from the family Ananaceae. Growing to about 15 meters at the very most, some would even call it more of a tall shrub than a tree. Here's more from the U.S. National Park Service, quote, One of the most tasty late-season rewards for hikers and wildlife alike is the pawpaw fruit, which begins to ripen in late summer and peaks in September and October. In spite of pawpaw's prevalence in national capital region forests, successfully foraging for its fruits can be a challenge. Pawpaw is self-incompatible, which means that pollen produced on a plant cannot pollinate flowers on the same plant. Instead, to produce fruit, a pawpaw flower must receive pollen from flowers on another tree, and sometimes this other tree is farther away than it may appear at first glance. Although pawpaws frequently grow in clusters, think pawpaw patch, the trees in a patch are often genetically identical and connected underground by roots, and thus in biological terms are a single plant. Nonetheless, pawpaw's pollinators, which include flies and beetles, inevitably pollinate some flowers, and fruit hunters may eventually find a tree with fruit. Opossums, foxes, squirrels, raccoons, and birds are all known to enjoy pawpaw and are likely to be closely watching for ripe fruits. Still, pawpaw fruit can often be found by closely surveying the ground underneath a fruiting tree. End quote. You would be fairly unlikely to find a pawpaw at your local grocery store. It would be a bit more likely, but still kind of rare to find them at farmer's markets. The best way to get your hands on a pawpaw is to go out and pick one yourself. Now, if you're not sure where to find a pawpaw tree or how to identify a ripe fruit, folks like Michael Judd, the pawpaw educator and author, are here to help. Judd teaches people how to forage and says that during pawpaw season, he spends so much time harvesting that he ends up skipping meals and only eating pawpaws. 
But, he tells the New Yorker, the pawpaw gives him everything he needs, nutrients and energy-wise, to keep on working. Judd advises that pawpaws start out rock hard, and once they're softer, like a really ripe peach, then you can pick them to enjoy. They'll get a bit richer over the coming days if kept in the fridge, but they do go bad fast. He suggests freezing them and then peeling them like a potato. And if you want to see the pawpaw in action, I'm dropping links in the show notes to a video from Vox and another one from foodie YouTuber Emmy Made, both of which contain taste tests showing off just how creamy the inside of a pawpaw are, as well as its big, almost almond-sized seeds. And one pro tip from Emmy Made is to eat a pawpaw with a spoon to avoid the mess that all the Vox taste testers were subjected to. So, the earliest fossil record of the pawpaw goes back to the Miocene epoch, between 23 to 5.3 million years ago. Those fossils were found in modern-day Colorado. But the pawpaw probably came from further south, around Central America, where the others in the Ananaceae family were. The pawpaw is the only genus in that family to have moved north, alongside the migration of larger mammals also going north. Those megafauna, like mammoths, mastodons, and saber-toothed cats, might have originally helped move the fruits north and eastward. More recently, thousands instead of millions of years ago, various Native American tribes may have also helped disperse pawpaws throughout the eastern half of the continent. Tribes in the east were harvesting them long before the first documentation we have of pawpaws from colonizers in 1541. Sean Sherman, co-owner of the Sioux Chef and the founder of North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, told National Geographic that part of the reason pawpaws aren't found in every grocery store and aren't widely known even in their native habitats has to do with the historical mistreatment of Native Americans and their culture over the centuries. Quoting National Geographic, While foodies may say the pawpaws undergoing a renaissance, Sherman says it's really a reclamation of long-buried culinary culture that was lost because of the relocation and genocide of indigenous peoples in North America. Sherman says much of the native pawpaw growth was lost during colonial deforestation to make way for farming. End quote. And even more recently, Vox points out that between 1900 and 2010, the U.S. lost almost 950,000 acres of forested land each year. And the eastern part of the country, aka the pawpaw belt, was disproportionately affected. So there are a lot less pawpaws around than there were around the founding of the United States when Thomas Jefferson was planting them at Monticello and sending their seeds to friends in France. That said, there have been a few times that people thought the pawpaw was finally going to get its chance to shine. According to National Geographic, agriculturalists were betting on pawpaws to be the next big thing back in 1916, thinking they'd outpace blueberries and cranberries in popularity. But, quoting National Geographic, somewhere along the way, the pawpaw disappeared from the American consciousness. The problem, experts say, is that both the fruit's picking season and shelf life are unfortunately short. Pawpaw trees bear fruit for only about six weeks in late summer. The fruit bruises easily, and after picking, only lasts a few days, about a week refrigerated, presenting significant commercial challenges. End quote. 
Nina Berryman, farms manager at Weaver's Way in Pennsylvania, agrees, telling Food & Wine back in 2019, quote, It just doesn't travel well, so it doesn't fit into our conventional, large-scale agricultural system that ships food across the country and across the globe. End quote. So why then do some people now think it's the next big it food, with The New Yorker literally titling their article today, Move over, acai, it's the pawpaw's time. Part of it might have to do with the growing popularity and prioritization of farmers markets. Another could be the much smaller but still increasing trends of slow food and foraging. Occasionally going hand-in-hand with the foraging trend is the ability for anything to become trendy if enough people post about it on social media with well-framed photos and sweeping shots of the great experience an influencer had picking pawpaws while on a weekend trip to the East Coast. Now, there could also be scientific advances on the horizon that would make the fruit more shelf-stable. Kirk Pomper runs a research program at Kentucky State University that, among other Papayan initiatives, breeds better-tasting varieties of the fruit, picking out ones with more pleasant coconut or pineapple notes instead of some of the more bitter ones that you can sometimes find in the wild. Pawpaws can also be bitter if they're not quite ripe yet. Apparently, the uglier a pawpaw looks, if it almost looks like a banana that's a couple days past its prime, then the pawpaw is probably at its tastiest. Another push factor for pawpaw's popularity is its growing presence on menus, helping people learn about the pawpaw and understand how versatile it can be. Many chefs in places where pawpaws abound feature pawpaw dishes when it's in season. While they often have to explain to customers what the fruit is, the menu items, cakes, ice creams, vinegars, sauces, tarts, cocktails, are very popular. National Geographic has a list of farms and orchards across several eastern U.S. states where you can pick or buy fresh pawpaw, and they've additionally linked to a website that keeps track of pawpaw festivals. Across this month and next, you could hit up a pawpaw festival if you are going to be near Big Stone Gap, Virginia, Albany, Ohio, Frederick, Maryland, Hallam, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia University. There are also smaller events and workshops on the list, so check it out at the link in the show notes if you want to get your pawpaw on. Now, I will say, the Ohio Festival in particular looks pretty awesome. It is their 24th annual, happening this weekend, and it will see about 10,000 visitors. The festival will have a bunch of live music, different workshops and panels, and so many vendors showing off their their pawpaw best, including 11 different breweries and 16 different food trucks, featuring everything from pawpaw barbecue and salsa to pawpaw bubble tea, funnel cake, and cotton candy. It sounds amazing. But will the pawpaw come to dominate the fruit market? Probably not, unless some of those scientists can eventually breed a more sturdy and shelf-stable variety. For now, it will probably remain a more niche fruit, but one which encourages eating local, getting back in touch with nature, and celebrating the food that's indigenous to the land you live on, all of which are trends that both continue to grow in popularity and are also really positive directions for us to move in in terms of the climate crisis. So no, the pawpaw will probably never be shipped all over the world like apples and bananas, but could it become a more regular staple in the pawpaw belt of eastern North America? It just might.
If you were on Twitter over the weekend, you may have seen a few more butt jokes than usual. That's thanks to a prompt from the Twitter account Ice Giant Missions asking the internet what a NASA probe of Uranus should be called. The replies and even the idea of the prompt itself was, of course, hilarious, but Ice Giant Missions is not a NASA-affiliated account, just an account pushing for missions to Uranus and Neptune sometime in the near future. But thanks to a photoshopped image from the cover page of an official NASA proposal that the unofficial Twitter account included in the tweet, many people online mistook this for an actual contest that the space agency was running to have people name an upcoming Uranus orbiter and probe. Now, NASA does actually hope to send an orbiter and probe out to Uranus in the early 2030s, arriving in the 2040s, but nothing is greenlit just yet, so sadly, none of the excellent and punny suggestions from over the weekend will be being used just yet, if ever. At the moment, the mission is just a recommendation to NASA from a panel of experts. Space.com explained back in April, quote, Uranus is a mostly unexplored world. NASA's only visit to the seventh planet was Voyager 2's brief flyby on January 24, 1986, during which scientists discovered some of the planet's rings and moons. The new recommendation comes from a process called the Decadal Survey, which is led by the National Academy of Sciences and offers NASA guidance for prioritizing science goals. That committee's new report highlighted a mission concept called the Uranus Orbiter and Probe, or UOP, for a multi-year orbital tour during which it should jettison an atmospheric probe. The committee called Uranus one of the most intriguing bodies in the solar system and targeted launch opportunities in the early 2030s for a 12 to 13 year cruise out to begin observations. End quote. And as Science Alert points out, we've sent missions to Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, but ice giants like Uranus and Neptune have largely been neglected. Hence, both the expert enthusiasm for a mission as well as Twitter accounts like Ice Giant Missions. Astronomers hope to learn how ice giant systems formed and evolved and how Uranus's many quirks, like its axial tilt, came to be. For now, this proposed mission, at this point really more of a concept or a confluence of various proposals, is just called the UOP. But once missions are actually planned and funded, they tend to take on more creative names, like Voyager, Perseverance, New Horizons, and Juno. So even though it was not actually an official NASA request, what did the public suggest for an orbiter and probe of Uranus? It turns out there were a lot of very serious suggestions. But first, the butt jokes. There was Deep Dive, Charmin, and Proby McProbe Face, as well as some good old acronyms like Advanced New Uranus Space Mission, or ANUS, Planetary Orbital Observation Probe, or Poop, and Better Uranus Telemetry Tracking, or BUT. Among the more serious answers, though, folks tended to go with established themes, like the name of the astronomers who discovered the planet, its moons, or other important facets of the planet. William Herschel discovered Uranus in 1781, but there's already a space observatory named after him, so some people have suggested naming the probe Caroline, after his sister, who often worked with him on his discoveries and made many discoveries and published several papers in her own right. Or Bode, after Johann Ellert Bode, who determined the planet's orbit. 
Some people went the mythology route with suggestions like Boreas, the Greek god of the North Wind, or Loki, the Norse god who defeated the ice giants. And as Uranus's 27 moons are named after characters from the works of Shakespeare and Alexander Pope, people have suggested either Shakespeare, Pope, or additional characters from those works. A popular suggestion as well is Tempest, the play which provided the name for many of the moons and which many people agree just seems to fit the vibe of Uranus. Space.com points out that the orbiter and probe will probably have separate, possibly related names, so something like Pope for the orbiter and Shakespeare for the probe could be a good idea. A top contender, however, is Caelus, the Roman counterpart to the Greek god Uranus, and the name that Uranus the planet probably should have instead. Quoting Slate, Uranus wasn't always going to be called Uranus. When astronomer William Herschel discovered the planet in 1781, he wanted to name it George's Star, after King George III, which would have certainly not been as funny, interesting, or even accurate. Astronomer Johann Bode, who helped discover the planet, agreed with us future folks that George was not the winner, and instead wanted to follow with traditional nomenclature of the outer planets, which are named after Roman gods. Jupiter was the father of all gods, Saturn was the father of Jupiter, so Bode thought this new planet should be the father of Saturn, the god of the heavens, Caelus. For some reason, though, Bode broke the pattern for Uranus and used Caelus's Greek name. It's still the only planet in our solar system that jumped pantheons. We have no reason to think Bode's choice was a prank, but it would have been a pretty good one. End quote. And by the way, some will say that the planetary pronunciation is Uranus, which I often say to try to make it less distracting when I'm not doing a segment about planetary butt jokes. Though interdisciplinary scientist currently working on the JWST, Heidi Hamill, says that that sounds so much like Uranus, aka an adjective meaning relating to the qualities or odor of urine, that it's basically a lost cause either way you pronounce it. But Slate points out that even Uranus isn't technically the correct pronunciation. Quoting again, For some reason along the way, the spelling became Latinized to Uranus, and the pronunciation seems to have followed suit. It's not clear why this non-conforming nomenclature took on the Latinized pronunciation when the name was selected, when, in keeping with tradition, our seventh planet should really be called Orinos, which would really not lend itself to such laughter. End quote. Such a planet of mystery. The orbiter and probe may be unnamed and unofficial for now, but I, for one, cannot wait until we get a closer look at Uranus. All right, well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. Summer camp is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Why Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at whycampidaho.org.